All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, hopefully, everybody is seeing me fine. Uh, my name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brett Lee with uh, Aqua LA, Aqua West, uh, U.S. Army uh, Entertainment Office. We have a few names, a little dysfunctional, but, uh, but we uh, most people know us as Aqua LA, um, and we're uh, we're very proud to be hosting our our third show talk, uh, and we're very excited about the the topic and the uh, and the participants. Um, but before we get into that, uh, just sort of talk through if you if you're new to this, uh, why we why we do Joe Talks. Uh, it's our opportunity to uh, to talk directly with the entertainment industry uh, to connect um, Army representatives, uh, senior leaders, and subject matter um, experts with the entertainment industry, more specifically with uh, creative professionals in the industry. Uh, and uh, for those who don't know Aqua LA, you know, we, we support positive representation of, of the Army and entertainment media. We have been doing that uh, for the better part of 70 years. Uh, our first office was opened out here with this mission in 1952. So uh, we'd like to remind that we've been out here longer than uh, in most of the studios that, that function out here. Um, so some session rules. Uh, if you, we, we do have a Q&A portion to this uh, later in the segment. Uh, if you would please go into the Q&A section and type your questions, I'll be able to see them. Uh, don't use the chat because it, it might not necessarily uh, pop up uh, where I can read your question. So, uh, so use the Q&A format. Uh, and uh, of course, I think in this format, everything will be muted except for our presenters, um, and, and that's the way we'll. We'll handle that. Uh, I will also say that, uh, in particular, with this topic, uh, this is not a representation necessarily of Army policy or our programs. Uh, these gentlemen are coming on uh, in an academic forum to discuss uh, concepts, uh, current, both current and future, uh, and so uh, we won't uh, we won't hold them accountable to uh, be writing any uh, DoD regulations anytime soon. Uh, so with that. I'm really proud and honored to be introducing um, two incredibly smart and accomplished individuals um, who uh, are doing some very exciting work on, on many different topics. Um, but it really, to us, is uh, it really exemplifies this um, collaboration, cooperation between the civilian sector uh, and, and the military. Uh, and so we have with us uh, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Cavanaugh, uh, who is an Army strategist, currently stationed um, at NORAD. Uh, and then we also have uh, Mr. Max Brooks, uh, best-selling author uh, and, and consistent collaborator with, with Matt on the project, that, which we will discuss. Um, uh, most of you all, of course, would know uh, Max from, uh, from his book, uh, World War Z, which was made into a Brad Pitt, very famous movie in 2013. But he's got a whole wealth of other um, projects under his belt, uh, and uh, he's, he's uh, as I say with Matt, you know, our, our so-called eight-pound brains uh, in the Army. Matt is definitely one of those, and Max gets the honorary civilian eight-pound brain uh, label as well. Um, so real quick, we'll talk about Matt's background. He's a West Point class of 2002. He has a um, master's in strategic studies at the Victoria University in, in Wellington, New Zealand as well as a PhD in international relations um, at the University of Reading in the, in the UK. He taught defense and strategic uh, studies um, at West Point from 2012 to 2015. Um, and uh, he is currently a professor of practice with the Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies on top of his day job 
at uh, NORAD. Uh, he is a co-founder and senior fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Um, and then now we'll get into the bragging part, Matt. Um, youngest recipient of the Army Strategy Association's Professional Award, the Order of St. Gabriel, Archangel, Angel, uh, in 2015. Also received the highly coveted APGAR Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2014 at West Point. Um, and to top it all off, he's not just a brain, he's an athlete. He was the Athlete of the Year in the United States Army in 2009. Um, and so uh, he also has uh, some charity work. He's on the Advisory Council for the Wounded Warrior Project, uh, or at least he has been. Uh, he was from uh, 2014-2016. He was a term member of the Council of Foreign Relations in 2014-2018. And, um, and uh, he has many, many writings to his name, which uh, we will probably talk about later as we go through the session. Uh, Max Brooks, uh, as I mentioned, uh, author of World War Z, as well as the Zombie Survival Guide, uh, and the Zombie Survival Guide recorded attack. Uh, it definitely cornered the, the zombie market, uh, but uh, anybody who's read that book knows that it's way more than about zombies. <laughs> uh, there's a, a lot more to unpack in that book than, than just zombies. Um, but uh, in the end, really, the re one of the reasons that he has a relationship with the Army specifically is that a lot of his writings and his thinking um, uh, have challenged our old ways of thinking and encourage mental agility and flexibility when responding to crises um, and handling complex problems. Um, he has a, a unique and unconventional uh, thinking that's depicted in his books, which has caused the Army and, and the, the Joint Force to really gravitate to his writings to try to glean some lessons on how to respond um, in the event of a crisis. Um, he's also uh, chronicled the true story of the Harlem Health Fighters, the, the famous African American unit in World War One. Uh, he also has a, a relatively new uh, fiction book, uh, Minecraft, <laughs> Minecraft: The Island, which is the first official novelization of the, the video game franchise. So, but he is also a senior fellow at the Modern War Institute, and that's how we, we come back together again. He has uh, collaborated with Matt on two entry points, uh, Strategy Strikes Back, How Star Wars Explains Modern Military Conflict, and Winning Westeros, How Game, Game of Thrones Explains Modern Military Conflict, uh, which we alluded to in our, um, in our last email that I sent out yesterday. So, so with that very long-winded bio of uh, you guys. Uh, kudos on, on everything you've done so far. Uh, we hope that this will become a highlight uh, to add to that resume for both of you all. Uh, welcome to Joe's Talk. Uh, I'll pass it over to you guys to, to, for your opening comments. So we, we worked this out. I'm, I'm going to lead. Uh, Max is going to clean up and probably uh, clean out the bases for me. Um, I'm excited to be here for two reasons. Uh, first, you know, in the run-up to this, in the preparation for this, uh, knowing where you are uh, in Hollywood, I was excited to learn that my dad's dad's cousin's son directs the screenwriting program at USC. And I actually asked that question, what's that make us? Uh, and it's absolutely nothing, probably, um, but it's something to aspire to um, because the second reason I'm excited to be here is because I know the power of stories. Um, they've bookended my entire career from the day that I was in basic training when uh, Russell Crowe's Gladiator uh, was all the rage and half of the platoons in basic training 
uh, were using strength and honor as their mottos. Uh, to just last week when I left uh, work, there was a giant poster um, with a gladiator image uh, and the tagline, it was, it was for an upcoming war game. The tagline was war game to rule them all, which is kind of like mixing movie titles and metaphors and Lord of the Rings and gladiator and all in one big soup. Um, but I see the power and the strength in the megaphone that projects out of Hollywood. Um, the stories to a significant extent guide our lives. Um, on January 6th, there was this horrible assault on the nation's capital. Uh, about a few days later, I was listening to George Saunders, the writer, talk about it, and he pointed out that he felt as though the um, the scenes from the Capitol mirrored the scenes from World War Z, uh, the film, with 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 people crawling all over the walls, seemingly possessed with an idea. And then a day later, I listened to a, an interview with one of those uh, Capitol Police officers that was assaulted that day, that was beat up, frankly concussed, and he said that they were possessed like zombies. And they were possessed like zombies with a story uh, that led them to those actions. Um, so there is strength in, in these stories but for both good and for bad. And, and we in uniform uh, can learn an awful lot from that. You know, I see the relationship, you know, in a lot of ways, and I'm going to come back to this in some of the Q&A, um, the strengths that that Hollywood provides and the, the, the raw ideas the Pentagon brings to those stories, it's almost like a coal miner. I feel like I'm, I'm inside of a coal mine covered in dust uh, with, a, with a bit of a black lung, so I don't speak very well, not very eloquently at all. Um, but Max is almost like a canary that can float to that coal mine and sing, sing so the world can listen, sing so well that everyone wants to listen. And so I see that as, a, as an essential uh, relationship that's really can be very positive. And we've seen examples like this before. Uh, Frank Capra making the Why We Fight series in World War II, uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, getting his idea for Dr. Strange Love from a Royal Air Force uh, pilot, pilot, a major in the Air, Royal Air Force. Um, but I want to pivot to how we got to working together. And it actually started with another virus. Um, I was uh, writing on my own independently in my private capacity, trying to figure out how many troops it would take uh, to port on off the Ebola crisis in West Africa in about 2014. And out of the blue, Max pinged me about some of those calculations and some of those ideas, and it sort of germinated naturally. Um, and I think that actually that nucleus is really the uh, explains a lot about maybe the best of, of this kind of a relationship, not just between myself and Max, but between the Pentagon and Hollywood. Um, that it's that it's voluntary. Uh, that it's uh, it's based on a mutual set of interests. Um, I am terrified of a global pandemic. Um, I am a parent, just like Max is. Uh, we want the best future for our children. 
we have different skill sets to bring to bear on the problems that threaten us today and tomorrow. Um, at the same time, while I was writing about uh, the Ebola crisis, I was sort of um, in the in the the opening stages of building what became the Modern War Institute. And I think at about the same time, Max was getting uh, more involved with people with short haircuts. So I'll I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Matt. Uh, first of all, let's let's just clear up. Matt sings just as well as I do. Uh, he's a great storyteller and a great thinker. Uh, uh, you know, I got into this racket because my book, World War Z, got on the reading list for the Naval War College. They asked me to come in and speak, and I think you could still find it on YouTube, me wondering whether somebody shuffled the wrong papers. And there's like a Lieutenant Commander Max Brooks wandering around Comic-Con, realizing that he's definitely in the wrong place. Uh, I must have said something right because they kept inviting me back, and then I was invited to speak at other strategic studies groups. And then I met uh, a young Captain John Spencer, fresh from Iraq, who said, we're starting up a new group called the Modern War Institute where uh, we have to study how people conflict with one another, uh, which I thought was brilliant because as a history nerd, I realized that one of the worst mistakes we made was right about when I was born. It was right, at, right when Vietnam was winding down, and not just the military, but the whole country couldn't wait to put Vietnam behind us uh, instead of learning from it, instead of realizing that this wasn't a national nightmare that we could wake up from. We had just woken up to a whole new world. And that denial and, and that rush to our comfort zone on, on both sides, civ and health, uh, is exactly what caused so many kids to die in Iraq and Afghanistan having to relearn those lessons uh, from scratch. So I was asked to be in the Modern War Institute, uh, which is where I met Matt. And Spencer said to me, uh, he's like, you're gonna meet this guy, Matt Cavanaugh. He's kind of the energizer bunny. And he just keeps going. <laughs> so I was, I was very excited to meet him. He wanted to put together this amazing, great idea. He said, look, I'm in Korea. I'm trying to talk to my, my rock allies. And then I'm at West Point trying to talk to my cadets, my students. How do I speak a language that they understand? They said, well, they've all seen Star Wars. So <laughs> would we teach strategy through Star Wars? And I thought, well, that's, that's a brilliant idea, right? I mean, that's how people learn. Going back to the very first stories, going back to Esau, uh, the Judeo-Christian Bible, all the stories of the Quran and Hindu and Buddhists, all these stories that inspire people. Because what a storyteller does is to be able to lift you from your life and put you in the shoes of someone else. And that can be used for good or that can be used for evil. And let me tell you, uh, the evil folks are really good at that. Nazis were the masters of that, if you ever saw Triumph of the Will or communist propaganda movies. Even in our country, to this day, half of our citizens are sold on this magnificent lie that in the Confederacy, in the Civil War, uh, people couldn't wait to join the cause. They just couldn't wait. They were excited. The whole South was together. We were going to stop them Yankees. This was it. Yay. Absolute crap. Because we know that it was the South, not the North, that had to institute a draft because nobody wanted to fight what was called a rich man's war, a poor man's fight. 
And there were so many desertions that it was the South before the North that instituted, instituted mass executions of deserters. Because once they got into it, these poor kids said, I never owned slaves. I barely own shoes. Why am I fighting today? And yet the victory of the Confederacy was not on the battlefield. It was in the pages of history because what they failed to do with their generals, they succeeded with their historians and their storytellers, which after Appomattox crafted this narrative that they were all in this together, which is why to this day you still see people who would have never owned slaves and would have been spat on by slave owners are flying the Confederate flag. That's when the bad guys outstory the good guys. And so we see this again today overseas. The Chinese are buying up Hollywood like there's no tomorrow. They're on a goodwill campaign mm. to basically sell the world on this wonderful notion of capitalism without democracy. And they're succeeding. Because who's the hero of, of COVID, right? Which country really kicked COVID's ass? It was Taiwan. Democratic, free press, everything we cherish, they knocked it out. China wants Taiwan to disappear. So right now we're being sold on the idea that it was mainland China under their authoritarian rule that's somehow beatable. I mean, uh, uh, COVID. No, but they are mastering the storytellers. So this is why I think the ability to communicate to especially a democratic people who are the boss, who are the taxpayer and the voter. We must be able to make them understand in that very simple terms, why we fight. And just FYI, we know in this new era of great power competition, fighting is not about force of arms, right? Our enemies are very good at asymmetric warfare. They almost destroyed NATO the last four years without firing a shot. So we must, we have to, if we are to honor all the sacrifices of generations that came before us, reclaim the mastery of storytelling to convince the boss, the voter, the taxpayer, why we can. Mm. Oh, that, that's incredible, guys. You know, as much as we talked about the other day, we didn't even talk about the Civil War. And nothing. So that just goes to show you just how big this topic is. Uh, you know, I, there's so much to unpack with that, but, you know, when you're speaking about the Nazis, you know, you have to go back to Goebbels' line that, you know, if you tell a lie enough, it becomes truth. Uh, and, you know, nowadays we talk about myths and disinformation. Misinformation can sometimes be accidental uh, just through a, a system of, of ignorance of the topic, but disinformation is propaganda. Uh, and, and the Chinese are really good at it. Uh, and so I, I think you're really hitting on something. I mean, we obviously preach the, to the choir here that, you know, entertainment media it has a strategic impact on the American people understanding topics, most specifically for this forum, understanding their military and the role that they play in, in supporting the military. And we talked a lot about that civil military divide and, you know, the tagline for this Joe talk was building better bridges. Um, so for either of you gentlemen, I mean, can you sort of unpack the, the, the work that you two do with your commercial writing to help to narrow that divide and the dangers that exist when that divide continues to widen, which it has done over the last few decades? 
So I'll jump in and, you know, fiction and film, whatever angle you're coming at it for, at, you know, from, you know, it's our coffee table, it's our water cooler, it's the common place where we all sit down together and have, we, we come into understanding. You can't have a conversation if you're not on the same piece or patch of earth. And so, at least for us, you know, um, capitalizing on the immense global popularity of Star Wars was a really effective tool for for facilitating facilitating some of these conversations. Um, you know that we had General Stan McChrystal write the foreword for the Strategy Strikes Back book, and when I first approached him about that, he essentially said, "Yeah, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but dot dot dot." When, when he finished Ranger School as a young lieutenant, the very first film he staggered into as an emaciated, thin, beaten human being after that tough training was the very first Star Wars film. So he's a guy in his late 50s, 60s, who has some understanding of that film series, just like every generation that's come after it's a it's a common experience, a common frame. And um, after we did the book, a Japanese air self-defense officer um, came up to me, barely spoke any English, and, and pushed this patch in my face. You know, that's – this is – you know, Max brought up that part of the inspiration for this these books was that um, my ROC Army, the Republic of Korea Army officers – um, they don't know a lot about the American Civil War. They don't know a lot about um, our experiences in World War II. They know a hell of a lot about Star Wars. And so coming together on a conversation um, that transcends uh, uh, nationalities, languages, cultures, you know, that's a big deal. Um, that's, that's bigger than Hollywood, bigger than the Pentagon. It's the, it's the universal war, so to speak. Yeah. I'll say that, uh, you know, getting back to how good our enemies are at this, you know, we knew this generations ago. As a Gen Xer, I will tell you, and maybe some of you remember this, maybe you don't. There was a TV show called G.I. Joe, American Hero. <laughs> I might be the only one who remembers the episode where Cobra decides to attack the G.I. Joes not on the battlefield, but through the airwaves. They take over the TV world. And they established Cobra TV. Wow. It was amazing. I mean, there's literally, there's, there's a part of it where you see these little fuzzy uh, puppets like the Muppets. And two of them are talking to the third one and go, it's okay, Fuzzy Wuzzy. People don't like you just because you don't look like everyone else. And they wave a magic <laughs> one. And the third puppet looks like the other two. And I think it was either Flint or Duke. One of the Joes was like, oh, my God, we have to stop this. Because... <laughs> As our old boss of the Modern War Institute used to say, it's not propaganda if it's true. You can counter propaganda with simple truth. Mm. You're honest about it. You know, if I was going to lead a national campaign against the Chinese, what I would do is I would show four pictures. Not propaganda. I would show a picture of George Floyd with the cops, and then I would show... Uh, the police chief, I think, I can't remember whether it was Austin, American City, hugging a protester. And I would say, this is who we are right now, but this is who we want to be. 
Then I would show two pictures from China, the Tiananmen Square guy standing up to those tanks and think, this is who they are now. And then to show the next picture, the exact same picture, and say, this is who they want to be. Yep. To illustrate that the American story is one of ideals established a long time ago and us trying every generation to get closer to those ideals. Uh, that is a great point because, you know, within the public affairs world, we, we struggle with that, um, that, uh, you know, we are in competition. And you all mentioned this from the start uh, the other day, that you talk about a great power competition. It's already happened. We are already in, in some semblance of a competition with China and Russia and even North Korea. Um, so, you know, looking at that, you know, how do you think that uh, the, your efforts, specifically at the Modern War Institute, help the force to better understand that competition? Well, so, I mean, by sh I would just say simply by shedding light on it, um, you know, there's there's what it looks like from our perspective as military officers. But again, um, some of these issues transcend military specific issues. They they involve and necessarily relate to other segments of of our national life. Um, you know, for example, uh, buying strategic assets, that sort of thing, and so. For us, the, the the these issues don't just aren't limited to our narrow little part of that coal mine. We've got to speak uh, louder than than just you know than than our own limited area would would to. We've got to get some of these issues out of the public arena, and I think that's what MWI, the Modern War Institute is about um, not just a conversation, a cloistered conversation for people in the know or in uniform, but trying to transcend the uniform and get it out into the broader and bigger public. Yeah, I mean, I would say for me, I'm very proud to uh, be invited to hang out with these guys at the MWI because for me, there's different types of courage. There is the obvious physical courage that soldiers are taught from day one. Uh, to put your body in harm's way, but there's another kind of courage, which is intellectual courage, the ability to expose your mind to new ideas, and most people don't like that, certainly not in Hollywood. I mean, there literally was, if I can quote Yosemite Sam, I'm a thinking, and my head hurts, and <laughs> there's plenty of people in the Army that don't want to do that because their head hurts, and there's plenty of people certainly in Hollywood that don't want to do that. But what is great about the MWI is the ability to reach out and bring in everybody, even if what they think or what they say is uncomfortable and scary and upsetting. Uh, I remember Rosa Brooks uh, just being at one of the MWI forums and just looking at this room of uniforms and, be, and just saying, like, you're not special. All right? <laughs> Nobody is. You guys yeah. aren't either, and we're not going to worship you. Yeah. And... I think one of, the, one of the proudest moments for me was there was a, there was this one speaker, and you saw him a mile away. Because look at me, right? I was wearing a suit, and, but I was the hippie in the room. This guy, flamboyant, didn't even wear socks. And I'm like, what? what is this guy doing here? What room did he accidentally walk into? But then he gave this amazing presentation about how a Chinese company bought Grindr 
the gay Tinder, specifically so the Chinese security forces could go to break in and go right down the road and dig up compromise on perhaps maybe a closeted general or a closeted senator or somebody in power. So then they could just use that at the moment they, I don't know, maybe decide to invade Taiwan, send a very discreet <laughs> email and say, dear Senator, I don't think you want to make that speech defending Taiwan. Here's what we've got on you. But yeah. it was the MWI who brought him in. So we must not be afraid to challenge our ideas, no matter if our head hurts. Well, I, I hesitate to ask this question, um, but, uh, you know, because um, <laughs> I'm wearing a uniform, but you had a great point. And, and I think for, for those on the line, you know, uh, Max, I don't think you'd be, have a problem with me saying that, you know, Max is Mel Brooks' son, uh, the, the, the incredible artist uh, of so many uh, amazing uh, movies. Uh, but you told an anecdote about your dad that I thought is really salient here, um, talking about how our American military leadership, in, in the eyes of the American public, they're untouchable. They're unquestionable. And, but what, if your dad, what was your dad's take on that? Well, you know, my dad was in World War II. He, my dad was a citizen soldier, which is why I'm always, I'm always perplexed by why the Army, you brought back the pinks and greens uniform. That's not your uniform. That's my dad's uniform. That is the uniform <laughs> of regular guys who gave up their lives to serve for a limited amount of time, not who are professionals in the professional arms. But, you know, my dad has no respect for generals as a profession. He respected different generals. You know, he, he hated Patton, but he loved Bradley. Uh, and so when my wife, we have to go back to say my wife actually is a playwright, and she wrote a play called War Words, which is like the vagina, vagina monologues, but for soldiers. And it's true stories with combat veterans to try and introduce, reintroduce us to each other, introduce the public to soldiers, why they fought. And so when she was getting ready for opening night, uh, General Petraeus paid us a visit because he was going to see it and see if he, it was worthy of him getting a blurb. So, oh my God, General Petraeus, here we go, wow. And my dad's there. And my dad's like, oh, you're a general. Ah, yeah, I was a corporal. So there we go, I'm something too. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I can totally see him doing that. Um, Brett, you know, that, that's pretty yeah, – I, I want to draw something out, and I, I think it's important. I think the best relationship, the best bridge we can build between those of us with short haircuts and the folks with a little bit longer shanks is voluntary. And it's it's mutually critical, but it's, it's uh, value added on both sides of that bridge. I mentioned this the other day that um, in 1932, the Soviet Writers uh, Guild had uh, 2,200 members. Uh, by the time Stalin died 20 years later, 90% of them were dead or in gulags. Um, you know, the, the writer that brought that out to me uh, pointed out that the purpose of state-supported literature was a literature-supported state. Uh, we come together because we want to and because we believe that it's mutually beneficial for the future of our families and our, our country. Um, you know, Max's dad, uh, that story represents the perfect relationship there. Someone who served, who respects what it means to serve, but is absolutely willing to poke fun at it uh, when needed and when appropriate. 
Um, so I, I do you know that's the kind of theme that I think comes out of these experiences, these engagements. Well, I would say, you know, I think there's a lot that we can unpack. Like, I think we covered a lot of that ground the other day, you know, sort of talk through and Madison, you want to talk about, you know, the benefits that you see in, in these meaningful dialogues, not the thank you for your service as you're walking through the airports, but like having long-term deep discussions about relevant civil military issues, the benefits of that. But then, you know, for both of you, what are the risks when we don't do that long-term, general, over, over a generation? So let me say there's a massive benefit, I think, for artists in the sense that it provides access to authenticity. You know, in, 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 it, uh, one of the oldest rules in writing is write what you know. And if you don't know, then then get to so, know someone who does know, and and through that experience, I think you can massively benefit. Uh, Max, I think your your wife, you know, spent a lot of time with real soldiers and real experiences in order to produce that art. Um, you know, in many ways, in Western civilization, the very beginnings of storytelling come from people trying to make sense of war, um, and and so. Uh, if, you know, for example, I uh, I have, uh, and I'm representative here, it's not just me, but um, I've filled out my will four times before I was 40. Um, I, uh, my wife, while I was deployed, had to take our older daughter to the ER several times alone. Um, we couldn't even do video chats while I was deployed with my younger daughter because it disturbed her so much. You know, there, there are little um, nuances about this life that I think are very hard to convey except one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but uh, I think that there's massive value in getting those stories out into the world, uh, into the hands of the people that are best equipped to tell those stories with the biggest megaphone. Yeah. And we're about halfway through our talk, so now it's time for me to get raw. And uh, <laughs> I'll tell you right now what, what's the end game. The end game is what we're living in right now, which is a sheep and sheepdog society. And it's broken, and it doesn't work. Because what happens is we now have this bullcrap worship of the military on my side. Oh, thank you for your service. What that really means is better you than me. Because when you – and this, this goes right to Hollywood – you know, the Hollywood image of the soldier in my dad's day was a regular schmuck just doing their part. But this worship of the military now, putting them up on pedestals, basically says, unless you're from Krypton, then you don't have to do anything to serve. I get to stay on the couch because, oh, you guys are amazing. You're, oh, you're absolutely here. Wow, thank you for your service. And what we don't understand anymore is that everything is connected. That even if you don't serve in the military, your actions as a private citizen influence the lives or cut short the lives of the people who protect your life. And you saw that in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Because what it used to happen was when we went to war, even if you didn't serve, your whole life was interrupted. You paid a war tax. You bought war bonds. That was a huge deal. Uh, you changed the way you went to work in the morning. You took public transit because your car was up on blocks. 
you you so you suffered in a way that you understood we are at war. But we had what twenty years in Iraq and Afghanistan. You'd never know it. Uh, if you looked at the top forty songs in two thousand two, right after nine eleven, remember after nine eleven, everything changed. Oh, nine eleven changed. No, it didn't. If you were uh, in the future, when historians look back and have nothing to go on American history other than pop culture, right? That's why we're talking. Pop culture, 9-11 never happened. No songs, no TV shows. Friends, number one comedy in America, took place in New York. 9-11 never happened. The only people who had the guts to do it were Spider-Man, where he's looking over the Twin Towers said, I could have done something, should have done something. But there is, and you see this in President Bush's speech of pray hundred kids go to the mall. That's the watershed moment of 50 years of the divorce. And so one of the reasons I'm involved with these people is to try and reintroduce ourselves to each other, not to say that you should join the army. No, because the wars we fight and will fight have to be with dedicated professionals who make that their life. You don't want a bunch of trigger pullers like my dad in there. They'll get slaughtered. But as a citizen, as a consumer, I have to understand the decision that I make affects everything around me. So that is why I try to tell these stories. Uh, so Brett, can I just, let me let me just add one more part to that. So the the bridge that we're talking about today. Uh, between Hollywood and the Pentagon is one thing, but then there's another bridge between soldiers and society. And w we see that actually, the, the second book that we collaborated on was Winning Westeros, which was um, using Game of Thrones, the immense popularity of this, the television series um, that originally flowed from George R.R. R. Martin's mind. Um, and that series provides a fantastic opportunity for civilians average people that are just, you know, they're, they're watching a television show to see that far off distant threats can kill you and that there is a penalty to be paid, a price to be paid when soldiers and the rest of society are so separate that when those soldiers, the, 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 the watch, um, you know, when, when the troops are trying to tell the rest of society that there's a threat on the way, no one listens, you know, that that's that's no good. Um, and I, I, I do think stories can help us to bridge that gap, um, you know, that 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 it can not only show us those costs, but also lead us to better benefits. So uh, I love that. Uh, so right now for the audience, if you have questions, uh, do put them in there. Um, we'll continue to talk. I do have a question from Josh real quick. Uh, this is more of a specific question about access to um, literature on battlefield strategies and hardware. My guess, I think, I know the answer is maybe the Modern War Institute could be beneficial there to someone like Josh. You mean in terms of like presenting opportunities to learn from fiction and film? Yes, like uh, some, if he's a little weak on a particular subject uh, that he wants to write about, would the Modern War Institute be a resource to him to provide some of that background information he doesn't have access to, to help shape absolutely. his Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both the books that we collaborated on, but, um, you know, there's there's just so much out there um, that, 
oftentimes for me, it just clicks while I'm sitting there passively at the end of the night next to my wife. Um, you know, we, we went back and watched uh, Falling Skies, which is sort of a, reenact, uh, a reenactment of the American Revolution um, using invading aliens. And it forced me to think about um, the American military nowadays is, is almost like Goliath. What would it, you know, how could Goliath uh, morph into David and still win? Um, Max's book, frankly, is a way of thinking about uh, a, a fast-moving global pandemic. Uh, you know, it, it gets hyperspeed in the film version, but I think the book is a much better treatment. Uh, you know, Christopher Nolan, even two of his films that aren't exactly about combat nowadays, so if you go back and watch Dunkirk, he's mm -hmm. he's giving the audience a lesson in the three speeds of war, war in the air, war at sea, and then war on the ground, what it's like to experience those three different tempos and paces. Or Interstellar, which came out when I left for Korea, and I can tell you that uh, as a dad leaving his daughter, uh, who felt compelled to leave, uh, but didn't necessarily want to, um, you know, that the, the the emotion that he was able to draw out in that film, frankly, um, is is very raw and similar to your average soldier. And right now, as we're sitting here, there's 250,000 troops uh, of all services serving overseas right now, and a little over half of them have kids. And so that experience, you know, Christopher Nolan, I think, has done a, a, a service to those of us in the military who do spend time overseas, um, people need to see what that costs. You know, th this this isn't just the the money we spent on the Department of Defense. This isn't just the lives that, that are lost overseas, but it's the the daily grind of of running um, the rules based international order. Frankly, so. Yeah, I, I I love that. I mean, yeah, the the guilt that you feel is is that you're yeah. in your heart when, when you have to go and you have to explain to a young one uh, why you don't have a choice and you need to go. Um, so we'll pivot real quick to strategy strikes back uh, just because I that is my you know, that's I've that's, I've had Star Wars on the brain since the little one. I I'm a Gen Xer as well. Um, so, you know, uh, Max, you touched the third rail earlier about criticizing uh, general officers. Um, I guess the other third rail is criticizing Yoda. Um, yeah. So, you know, you seem to be wise with the force, but you would say maybe not so much with strategy. So can you kind of unpack that? And then what, how is that relevant to military officers and, you know, Army strategy? Well, I think I think with, with any organization, it's not it's not just the military. Whenever you have an organization that is allowed to be out of touch and allowed mm -hmm. to think in an insulated group, that is very very dangerous. I mean, you saw this you saw this in the business world. You saw it in the auto industry in the 1970s and the early 80s, where the American auto industry didn't realize that Japan was about to eat them for breakfast. But they were so insulated, they thought, well, we'll just keep making big honking gas guzzlers that break after six months. Uh, and look what happened. You know, you see this, you see this in the education world. I know this growing up with dyslexia. I'll tell you, like, we're still teaching our kids this rigorous Prussian model of memorize and regurgitate. Uh, that doesn't work anymore. That was based on the Industrial Revolution. These kids are going to have to be nimble entrepreneurs. Uh, but 
you get a bunch of teachers in a room that, that have been teaching their whole lives, boom. You see it, uh, and you see in the military where once we ended the draft and once we took out war bonds and war taxes and rationing, uh, and the rest of us went on our merry way, we left the military to basically be in a, in a bubble. And I think that can be very dangerous uh, because, first of all, it forces the military to fight many more wars, but it, it also takes away a check. Uh, you know, I was reminded of the story of Tarawa, when it was the first time dead Marines were allowed to be shown on the beach, uh, half covered in sand, horrible, horrible pictures. Well, after Tarawa, Nimitz got letters from moms that basically, they, they didn't hold back. They said, you killed my son at Tarawa. And as a result, it hurt Nimitz so deeply to be so in touch with these moms that he made damn sure the next time those Marines landed, they had Amtraks, they had better fire support, they had everything they needed to keep those kids alive, which they didn't have at Tarawa. So I think that ability to connect was something that uh, the Jedi didn't have. Because we see in the movie, the Jedi are, they're the ultimate insulation. Because they're not just a warrior class, they're a warrior cast. Remember, you have to be born with the Force. You're not born with the Force, and you're not even allowed in. That birthright, I thought, was very dangerous, and we saw what happened. Yeah, so there's, there's, Matt, it was you, you that criticized Yoda. I don't want to blame Max for that, so I, I will give attribution to <laughs> Rick Doctor. Yeah, Sorry about that. I talked about the Ewoks. No, but yeah, yeah. So, so I'll be I'll be very brief. Um, strategists in the in uniform and then beyond can learn a lot from Yoda. Uh, I'll start with Clausewitz was a loser. So Clausewitz lost to Napoleon and afterwards wrote about how you might go about developing synthetic war experience. So, so using your mind, because really, like, we can't practice war. It's a little bloody. And so using your mind to think through strategic problems. And if, if you look at the arc of Yoda's experience, uh, there's a big gap between the myth you know, the flipping and the fighting and the, you know, the cute noises um, and, and reality. And he is charged as the, the chief strategist for the Jedi and the protector of the Galactic Republic. And from episode one to episode three, you know, he goes from, you know, in charge, so to speak, to being two heartbeats away from being wiped out, from the Jedi being completely wiped out. And the Galactic Republic is, of course, gone. So strategy is always measured relatively. Uh, strategy is not, um, you know, uh, one plus one equals two. It's, it's always uh, measured in, uh, in contrast to your opponent. Yoda's opponent is Palpatine, Darth Sidious, the Emperor, um, it's very clear in the competition between those two who comes out on top. Um, I, I, what I think is useful for Yoda's competition with the Emperor is that you can pick apart the elements of what it takes to be a successful strategist, yeah. and you can see how Yoda did not succeed in those ways. So, yes, real-life strategists can learn something from Yoda's failures. Uh, which is at least 
something good because his failure was pretty massive. Yeah. Yeah. And what both of you are hitting on, uh, you talk about this warrior cat. Um, and I can, I think we can all sort of see corollaries there to the, uh, the profession of arms in the, in the American society. Uh, I think I told you guys this the other day, you know, I had a, a, a producer that I really respect and is very supportive of the military, uh, who just starts to put us up on a pedestal. And I'm like, stop, wait a minute. The more you put us up on a pedestal and make us appear to be superhuman, the less you can connect with us and the less accountable we are for our actions. Uh, and I think that's kind of what you're describing is the Jedi are hands-on. They are a different breed, literally and figuratively, than, than the people they're supposed to be protecting. Yeah, and I'll just say that I got the term warrior cast from the TV show Babylon 5, the sci-fi show, in which there's a race called the Mimbari, and they have three casts, worker, religious, and warrior. And eventually the warrior cast uh, starts to rebel and says, we do all the fighting, we do all the dying, we have all the guns. So you, the other two casts need to do what we say. And I think that that's something we've done very well in this republic uh, of making sure that more powerful than the guns are the ideals behind them. So when people are given the gun, they have the physical restraint and love of their country. Mm -hmm. uh, that's great. Uh, so I know you guys didn't write this. Erica Iverson wrote this. Uh, yeah, really yeah. great essay where she's highlighting the emergence of women in, in what could be considered male-dominated segments of the military in the past. Um, I'm, I'm interested, I'm really interested because I'm on the fence about this. Do you think that that um, entertainment media is driving that trend of overall society, or do you think that it's the opening up of combat roles to women that is driving society to see women being, you know, in roles that they're not used to seeing. Is it a chicken and egg or is it just, we're all going on the same rail line? Yes. Yeah. So, so in 1977, um, in, in Star Wars, A New Hope, 6% uh, of the lines in that film were spoken by women, basically just Princess Leia. At about the same time, women recruits to the Army were getting a letter um, that said that when they went to basic training, when they learned to fire a weapon, it wasn't because they were learning to aim very well. It was so they wouldn't be freaked out by the guns. Um, you know, fast forward 40 years to 2015, The Force Awakens, and almost 30% of the lines are spoken by women. Princess Leia is now General Leia. Uh, Yoda and Luke are Maz and Ray. Um, you know the, the the you know the central figures are are frankly they're female. Um, now uh, you you can see the same arc happening in the military. So women there are women rangers. Uh, on, they're on submarines and they're combatant commanders. And your your boss, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lee, is a is a female general officer. Um, I think it's both. I think the films uh, both impact and reflect a change in American strategic culture. We we see women as warriors uh, much more than we did 40 or 50 years ago, um, and it's it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I'll say just from a psychological point of view, most human beings struggle with imagining what they can't see in front of their face. That's just how we are as homo sapiens, and that's fine. That's where the storyteller comes in, 
because what stories can do is provide a proof. And right now there's a movie called Ashley's War that's in, I believe it's in development, if not the production, based on yep. a true story of first uh, female cultural support teams written by my friend Gail Samaclamon. I think that the way for people to get over their prejudices is simply show them the truth. And you do that through stories. You know, women have served bravely and proudly in our military since the beginning. Some have actually pretended to be dudes and put on men's clothing so they could fight in wars. Uh, those stories need to be told. Uh, women, yep. were, women were serving in whole units in World War I before they had the vote, uh, the Hello Girls. Uh, that needs to be a story. So I think the best way when someone has a prejudice and says, well, that would never happen, because that's the battle cry of, of the unimaginative. That would never happen. The way to counter that is by saying, no, it already has. Roll film. I love that. And, you know, see, in this day and age, Wonder Woman, obviously, uh, a female-led warrior uh, story, uh, which now has a sequel, you see Captain Marvel. Um, and I think, Matt, you're probably right. The, the answer is yes. I think we're all driving in the same direction. From an historical perspective, we can certainly see the impact that entertainment media had on race relations going all the way back to the 40s. Um, so it, it is powerful, which is really the mission of it offer, honestly, is to help to uh, provide those representations of the military in entertainment media so that you can better understand it. Well, and also, there's a lot of catastrophist talk whenever we go through change. And I, I've always said the Army needs to promote itself as a force for change uh, because it has. You know, the Army integrated before the country. The Army gave jobs to women before the country gave the vote to women. The Army said that it was okay to marry who you love before the rest of the country did this. So I think the Army, uh, the military in general, has, I think more than ever, is important to show us what is the value of a pure meritocracy. Because right now in this whole country, everybody is racing to get to the top of persecution mountain. Everybody, no matter what political stripe you're at is, oh, my tribe's been persecuted. Uh, and we're trying to get away from this notion of equality, that here are the standards, and whoever reaches that standard as an individual, doesn't matter where you're from, what tribe you're from, come on in. And that has been the Army standards, which uh, at least it is now. But the Army has led the way in being an equality-based meritocracy, and that needs to be the shining example for the rest of the country. Uh, Sidney makes a comment about that. She she agrees. I think probably related to your comment about Ashton's War that uh, you know we have a lot of there's a lot of there are a lot of military movies that have been made since the beginning of film. Uh, they're almost 100% male lead, male led films. Um, so Ashley's War, which we've received and and we've provided um, some some uh, edits to the script and it's an excellent script. But you know they're trying to help shape the script with them. Uh, I don't know where it is in the pipeline now, but that is one that, um, that you think tells that kind of story of a female-led um, military movie. It's, it's long overdue, I think. We should also state now that just, just from a strategic point of view, that prejudice removes your talent base. That when you're in great power competition, it's all hands on deck. If you've got talented people that can do jobs, 
you need to let them in. I mean, I'm not going to name names, but we've got a frenemy over on, you know, part of the world, but you're addicted to their oil. I'm going to say who, but I'll just <laughs> say that they don't let half their population in their workforce. That's all that talent, all that, that energy that's literally being locked up in a cage. That tells me when the you-know-what comes down, they're doomed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and let's not forget, Captain Marvel is a female-led uh, military movie in some sense because she was an Air Force uh, and yeah. the Air Force very smartly supported that film. Um, so, uh, you know, we're we are getting there. Um, but uh, it's a lot of it, you know, to be honest, you know, people who are serving in combatant commands are not writing the script. So it, it is incumbent upon the creative professionals that come onto these talks to, you know, get send us something that is a female-led uh, military film. Let us look at it, see if we can support it. And then, of course, you got to go through the, as you know, Max, the, the development pipeline to, to get a greenlit, which is arduous to say the least. Well, I think I think both sides both sides need to need to come to grips with understanding that when you tell a story based on a true story, that your boss is the truth. And you know the the, the storyteller side may want to sex it up and make it sort of cool, and the military side may not want to show you know sort of the dirty laundry of some life in the military. But both sides need to be open and honest, warts and all, uh, in order to tell a story the way it really was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have, if anybody has any more questions, we're, we're starting to wrap up on time. We don't want to take uh, people too long over the hour mark. Um, so uh, Max, I, I really liked your your essay. I do I do want to come back to that. So you your, your comparison of the support of the Ewoks in the Battle of Endor and Return of the Jedi, as in relation to the American support of the Jihadin in the 1980s. I love that connection. Please please talk us through that. My essay is simply that we, we, we treat the Ewoks like the Mujahideen, where we use them as a pawn in our wire war, and then once we win, we totally abandon them. So my story is, is a letter to the, the new Senate, the, the Republic Senate, basically saying, like, Endor needs to be rebuilt. All this warfare has utterly destroyed their society. You have a whole new generation of young men who know nothing but war, and if we don't help rebuild them their way, not our way, we're not going to rebuild them as a new Coruscant. We build them as Endor. If we don't do that, there's going to be a rise of a new militaristic society, which is just what happened in Afghanistan. <laughs> Americans used to be our, our greatness was winning the peace and understanding that our allies are our allies for generations, and we're in, and we're going to help them get back on their feet. So the next generation of those kids will be our friends and allies. We don't do that anymore. We're really crystal when Harry met Sally. We can't wait to run out the door. And when we do that, it will be revisited on our children. Well, uh, for both of you guys, what do you have next? Are you guys collaborating on any new uh, – you want to take on uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe next? What is it? <laughs> Go, Matt. Or the, new, the new Zack Snyder for Justice League. I mean, there's three. There's four hours of content you can dive into. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for my part uh, – I've, my eyes have been open to uh, the glory of storytelling. Um, I've been banging away at um, this divide uh, between civilians and the military for an awful long time, and, and I've tried my hand at writing stories about it and injecting some of the real world into those stories. Um, 
so and and I, it's something I think it's the most beneficial part of um, being exposed to the world that Max inhabits, um, which is uh, how do you build a better megaphone? And um, you know, for I'm, I'm we're, we're not collaborating on a specific book, but um, I, that's the impact that his work has had on me. Yeah, I mean, basically, my my main collaboration with Matt is. Uh, you know, I, is it public to say, Matt, that, that what your next future plans for the next act of your life might be? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when Matt eventually does become a civilian, it's going to be my job uh, to, just to teach him about civilian life, you know. <laughs> just, just be like, no, 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 Matt, you and the guy at Burger King are the same rank. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. No, 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 Matt, that's a traffic light. You can't just yeah. go because you've got somewhere to go. Matt, I know it's been two weeks, but it's not time for a haircut yet. Right. No, no it's okay. No, Matt, you can stop running. You don't have to keep running. You've done it. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. Um, so uh, I will I will wrap up here so that everybody can get back. Uh, we will say that, uh, that this will, this has been recorded. It'll be out on our LinkedIn account, which is uh, hashtag Joe uh, Talk. Uh, surprisingly, there are other Joe Talks, but we're the only one with the Army logo. Um, but uh, I will say our next Joe Talk, uh, it will be scheduled April 21st, same time, uh, 1300 Pacific Standard Time. Um, and, and it will be with uh, Dr. Gordon Cook, who is the Director of Research and Strategy at the West Point Simulation Center, which interestingly, interestingly enough is also un, uh, in the same structure as the Modern War Institute, which is great. Uh, uh, he's also an, uh, a, an assistant professor with the Department of Military Instruction. Uh, and this is going to be a topic where we are talking about divides. We're, we're connecting uh, the previous science fiction uh, to where it's now becoming science fact in relation to uh, artificial intelligence, AI, uh, and autonomy on the future battlefield. So uh, we, may, we probably won't be activating Skynet on the Joe Talk, uh, but we may be talking about what the future battlefield looks like and how do you comprehend it as, as uh, the complexity and the distances uh, that battles are fought now um, require some, some artificial intelligence. So very excited about that topic. Um, and uh, again, it'll be uh, April 21st um, at uh, one o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, in all of my discussions with you, I've, I've learned a ton. You guys are, are are very digging and intelligent and have a, an incredible perspective that I think fits perfectly into what we do out here in Off LA, but also what we're doing with our Joe Talks. So thank you for taking the time to participate. Thanks, Vince. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Everyone take care.